Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar Podcast. This is the third episode in our 2022 Tour de France series. And today, I am very fortunate to be joined by the editor-in-chief of BikeRadar.com, George Scott, and we're going to talk about tech trends from the Tour de France. So, welcome, George. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you, Simon. And yeah, looking forward to this podcast. We've got lots to talk about after our trip to Denmark last week. That's right. We were in Denmark. I was going to ask you what you've been up to, but of course, you and I have both been up to the same thing. We've been in Copenhagen, Denmark, for the grander part of the Tour de France. Did you have a good time, George? I did. It's, it was the first time I've been to Denmark. So um, just from a city cycling perspective, incredible to be in Copenhagen and just see the number of people on bikes and bikes locked up on every street corner, cycle lanes crisscrossing the city. Uh, it, you know, It's clearly a place that loves cycling and riding the bike is ingrained within the fabric of society. So no surprise that the Danes turned out in such force and lined the streets in their millions and uh, all in all put in a, a brilliant grand apart and from a tech perspective lots for us to talk about today so yeah brilliant trip yeah I mean well, I would say it was almost as good as the Yorkshire grand apart almost and almost I, <laughs> I did hear Marcel Kissel get asked that question in the ITV commentary <laughs> and he said the Yorkshire grand apart was better but he did wear uh, the yellow jersey there after winning <laughs> the first stage and another stage so he, he, he probably would say that <laughs> it did also rain on the opening the opening day of the Danish one, which probably dampened a few spirits. But you're right, it has been a uh, celebration of cycling. And yeah, we wouldn't expect anything less from, from, as you say, a country where cycling is truly kind of ingrained in the, in the culture. But yeah, we went over specifically to uh, check out the bikes. We didn't stay for the racing. <laughs> we came home before it started. So we just toured team hotels, hassled mechanics, hassled press contacts, basically to get access to the latest and greatest bikes so that we could bring them back for you and give you all the kind of juicy details, even the ones they don't necessarily want us to share. <laughs> That's right, yeah, and, and there was lots to see actually at this year's tour. Um, it may be my memory, my, my, my hazy COVID memory has been kind of put to the test over the past couple of years because we haven't necessarily seen as many new bikes, I think, in uh, the 2021 and 2020 tours. Um, so it felt like there was more for us to see this time around, um, some of which we'll talk about, but new Trek Madone, new Scott Foyle, bikes that we predicted we'll see in our pre-tour podcast. 
but also lots of trends that kind of ran underneath the surface, which I think we're going to talk more about today. Yeah, and and I think you know you mentioned the uh, track, the new track Madone there, and anyone who will have seen one of the videos, the first video that we produced um, from our time in Copenhagen, the top five new Tour de France bikes, will know that this one has caused a little bit of controversy because uh, the the particular bike that we uh, had access to, which was uh, Jasper Stuyven's uh, Trek Madone SLR, was quite heavy. <laughs> Um, nearly broke your scales. <laughs> well, I nearly broke my wrists. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's a joke. So yeah, obviously 8.3 kilos is a bit above the UCI's uh, weight limit. But in terms of the other bikes that we weighed, actually, it kind of wasn't really that far off. Uh, it was one of the, the heavier bikes that we weighed, but it wasn't the heaviest by quite a long way. And I don't think we weighed a bike under 7.6 kilos. So yeah, we're only kind of talking you know, a 500 gram difference between some of the lightest bikes and the, you know, the kind of more heavier bikes that we weighed. So it's it's kind of a a general trend across the Tour de France. Now, I think we've, we've kind of speculated that there are a number of reasons why we think this is, but the kind of important ones are the fact that you know, we, we were weighing bikes before a kind of a very flat... Uh, opening few days in Copenhagen in Denmark and and I think you know that's kind of the primary primary reason why we saw such heavy bikes yeah I mean generally there there is more of a focus on aerodynamics across the peloton you know not just on flat stages but yeah certainly pretty much everyone uh, across every team would have been riding an aero bike of sorts for stages two and three which both ended in sprint finishes um but then also the, the specs, as you kind of alluded to, they, they had deep section wheels on. Um, but also a good point you've made in your uh, article that will accompany this podcast is that you know, we weigh bikes as they are ready to ride. They have uh, computer mounts, uh, bottle cages, bottles, empty bottles. The, the team press officers often like us to photograph the bikes with bottles in because it's a sponsor and there are logos on the bottles. Um, power meters, uh, potentially heavy uh, in inverted commas paint jobs because uh, in the case of the Trek Madone it had a nice shiny red paint job and often when brands are away in their bikes for press material when a bike's launched it might be uh, in a smaller size with none of the accompanying parts um, and maybe with a, a lightweight uh, or kind of minimalist paint job so not exactly hugely surprising to see a disparity between a bike's claimed weight in a catalogue and what we're weighing at the Tour de France but as you say yeah, definitely a trend in recent years that bikes are getting heavier but as we'll come on to not necessarily or certainly not getting any slower so that weight uh, you know it's not it's not dead weight these are aero bikes it wasn't a huge surprise for us yeah exactly I think that's the kind of key point is that you know a lot of this weight like yeah bikes are getting heavier and things like disc brakes uh, you know, deep section carbon tubeless ready wheels and tubeless tires, you know, aero frame tubes, all of these things uh, do add weight, but it's functional weight. And I think that's that's kind of a, a key point. As you say, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later because this is kind of tied in um, to some of the kind of other tech trends that we've seen at the tour. You know, I, I think it's, especially with the, <laughs> the funny thing about that particular Trek Madonna uh, SLR as well is that... Um, Stoyven had a, a kind of uh, 
a slightly unusual saddle choice on it as well. It was a very old model of saddle, you know, distinctly kind of traditionally shaped, quite heavily padded, you know, no carbon rails or anything like that. And, you know, it <laughs> it looked 500 grams heavier than the kind of, um, you know, kind of fully carbon fiber Bontrager ALS saddle that, you know, you would get if you purchased a bike as a consumer. So there, there are always going to be, as as you kind of said, things things like that, that that don't appear on a spec sheet, but you know, inevitably once you get them on the road, you know, it's a slightly different story. So yeah. Bikes are definitely getting heavier. But as we'll talk about later, that might not necessarily be such a bad thing. I think with with Stoyven as well, he is in the we don't want to focus too much on Trek and the Trek Meadow, and that was one that just stood out. And uh, some of our lovely commenters jumped on in the on the YouTube comments that accompanied our video um, because it, it was one of the heavier bikes, and also it's a new bike. But you know, Stoyven himself is a, a fairly uh, big in inverted commas bloke in in the context of pro cyclists. He's six foot one. Uh, he he weighs kind of. 78 kilograms according to his Wikipedia profile which might not be the most reliable source but I'm going to go with it but you know he's won Milan San Remo he's won uh, Het Newsblad Uh, you know it was a bigger frame and you know one of the other bikes that you weighed was Caleb Ewans who uh, is a very diminutive sprinter uh, at the other end of the the spectrum in in terms of size and there wasn't a huge difference between those two bikes no I think I think Ewans bike if I remember correctly came in around 7.8 and yeah that would have been a size extra extra small frame of the uh, Ridley Noah fast again Ewan had uh, 60 60 millimeter deep uh, DT Swiss wheels he had 28 millimeter tires he had a Stella Talia saddle that wasn't you know kind of the, the lightest model that you could possibly get so you know even the kind of size the smallest spikes in the range were still coming in you know well well above the uh, the UCI weight limit but it, you know again the, the Noah fast is a kind of aero road bike it's focused on you know aero rather than lightweight and I'm sure Ridley would you know would quite happily say that they have you know another model in the range be it a kind of helium that uh you know would more easily be able to get closer to the uh UCI weight limit if the riders wanted it to it'll be interesting to see once the the mountains arrive uh in those teams where riders do have two bikes or, or more than two bikes to choose from like with the Ridley Helium being the lightweight bike as you mentioned and the Noah Fast how many riders do swap and how many stick to uh, the kind of go-to day-to-day race bike or the, the aero bike and also just what tricks we might see from teams to bring the weight down because um, in a previous edition of the podcast the last episode actually I spoke to uh, Dr Kieran O'Grady from Israel Premier Tech and he alluded to the fact that whilst most of their riders will be on uh, tubeless tyres throughout the tour and we'll come on to tyre choices because that's really interesting they will switch to tubeless for the most part for the mountain stages because they're lighter and obviously weight saving is key there so yeah heavy stages for flat uh, uh, flat sprints but they're fast bikes and that guys and uh, we won't be out in the mountains but I'm sure if we put those bikes or some of the team bikes back on the scales um, when the outdoors stage arrives then perhaps we'll see a bit of a uh, weight shaved off for the mountains yeah Absolutely. Um, cool. So on to our next trend. And I think this was a really interesting one for me. You know, I'm, I'm very uh, interested in this type of thing. And, and we can occasionally, you know, as with anything in cycling, occasionally think that we're kind of reaching a bit of a plateau with certain tech. And we're to, you know, going to talk about aerodynamics here. And I think there kind of, kind of had been a sort of assumption that we were, you know, all aero road bikes at the same. Everyone was wearing skin suits. 
you know, had aero had aerodynamics kind of reached a bit of a plateau in kind of pro road racing. But actually, we saw some really, really interesting stuff, particularly in the in the first time trial. But even on the road stages, if you looked closely, there was some really interesting stuff. And obviously, there was some there were some kind of obvious things like a couple of new aero road bikes. So we saw the as we said as we've already said the Trek Madone SLR. We've seen the new Scott Foyle RC, which our colleague uh, Ash Quinlan recently went on the launch of and has written an excellent first ride review. If you haven't read that, you can visit bikeradar.com to read that right now. <laughs> Click on the link that accompanies this description on your, your podcast provider of choice and you can pause us, read Ash's review and then come back to the podcast. Yeah, make sure you come back because you don't want to miss all of the good stuff we're going to talk about. Um <laughs> Obviously, both of those bikes are claimed to offer kind of, you know, a significant reduction in aero drag versus the previous model. And, you know, we, we've come to expect that. But there are more kind of interesting details um, that I personally picked up on in the kind of opening time trial for a start. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, the kind of most obvious ones. And that was that Team Ineos and specialized sponsors team to a certain extent were doing some funky things with their helmets. Definitely a case of uh, function over form. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, I think so. To put it politely. Yeah, so basically um, what they were doing is they were wearing really big helmets. Um, it's kind of as simple as that. Ineos had their kind of usual cask um, time trial helmets and Specialized had their new S-Works TT5 helmets, which they gave to their sponsored pro teams, uh, Quickstep, Alpha Vinyl, and Bora Hansgrohe. Um, now, both of these helmets kind of... The, the cask helmet wasn't a new helmet per se. They were All of the riders just seemed to be wearing them in the kind of largest size available. But look, from what we can kind of infer, the trick is the kind of trying to replicate the effect of the POC Tempor. Now, for those who don't know, the POC Tempor is probably one of the most infamous time trial helmets of, of kind of, you know, recent decades. It was launched in 2012 for uh, the London Olympics, actually, and it was designed around the position of a Swedish rider. But the kind of the main benefit of or supposed benefit of that helmet is it's supposed to act a bit like kind of a speed skiing helmet where rather than having a kind of traditional teardrop shape, it uses a kind of duck bill, almost kind of, Kind of wing-like shape to integrate better with your shoulders. Now, the theory behind it is that it helps move the airflow kind of over your shoulders and, and just kind of reduces your kind of you know uh, overall system drag. Now, from talking to various aero experts, it's quite a kind of. Actually, we have a review on BikeRadar.com where we were kind of we said it's very fast, but we also said it's not very fast unless you're in a kind of very specific position. And I think that's the kind of you know, the problem in inverted commas for most riders is that it's very hard to tell if you're riding in that very specific position unless you've had expert help. So, but obviously these pro teams who do have expert help seem to be trying to kind of apply this trick within the kind of constraints of their sponsors. Just to, to, to talk about the POC Tempo for a second, and this is definitely a diversion, but there's quite a funny video on our YouTube channel where you raced uh, Jack Luke, Depsy editor on Bike Radar, uh, he was on a time trial bike, is that right? Yeah, you were on a road right. bike, and, yeah. and Jack was also uh, using as many aero tricks as he could <laughs> to beat Simon on our local time trial course, inclu including the POC 
tempore which he managed to get his hands on. But it's fair to say Jack's position perhaps wasn't the most aerodynamic. No, so I think, yeah, just just to digress even more, I think with that helmet you essentially have to you have to be able to hold a very low head position because if you hold, if you hold a high head position, obviously the kind of the wings of the helmet uh, and the kind of hump on the top of it don't integrate with your upper body in the kind of manner that they're supposed to. Um, and and therefore, you know, because it's a, mu- a much larger helmet than a traditional, say, you know, a cask Bambino Pro Evo, uh, you're just kind of adding frontal area and not really benefiting from that the kind of improved integration of the helmet with your shoulders. But if you can hold that very low head position, um, and you can get it so that it, it yeah, as you, as you say, it kind of integrates nicely with your shoulders, then it can be very fast. Um, and yeah, and I, 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 we sort of think that's that's what these teams had going on, but it really did look ridiculous. I mean, Simon Simon Yates and uh, Danny Martinez and Tom Pidcock looked like, you know, they're kind of children who'd borrowed their dad's helmets. <laughs> small small riders, so you probably kind of almost overstated the effect as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and on top of this, uh, Ineos Team Ineos Grenadiers had some pretty kooky visors as well now they had obviously they had kind of clear or mirrored plastic plastic lenses and then on the kind of bottom edges of the lenses they had little uh plastic edges that kind of jutted out at a right angle and i hadn't seen this before uh, i spoke to an expert uh, dr xavier disley of um, the uk-based company aero coach and he suggested that it's a similar sort of trick the little edges were there to try and divert the airflow around the rider's shoulders so a kind of similar thing with the kind of tempore and the cask uh, sorry and the kind of big cask helmets and the big specialized helmets now that is a complete that was a completely new one to me i haven't seen that and i wonder if the UCI, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where it's obviously not in the UCI rules that you can't do it. So, it, you know, it was legal. But I do wonder if the UCI will have taken a, a quick look at that and thought, well, we don't like the look of that. And it, w- it would have been, I assume, an adaptation of a an existing design as opposed to a kind of stock feature. Yes, yes. And, and, and obviously, you know, there are rules around commercial availability in the UCI's rulebook that sort of state that, you know, if you're going to use something, it has to be commercially available. But there are kind of, you know, complications to that, including kind of, you know, prototype periods and things like that. And so, you know, if they use it now and then it, it eventually gets released within the kind of uh, allowed prototype period, then that's probably fine. But yeah, it's an interesting one because we know the UCI you know, the, the UCI have banned uh, socks that extend beyond the midpoint of your calf. <laughs> so, you know, things like little ed- visor edging for aerodynamic effects is kind of right up the kind of street of things that the UCI, you know, they banned hub end caps as well that have had aerodynamic profiles. So th- this this seems to me to be right in the kind of ballpark of things that the UCI might not like. They will be rubbing their hands together in, in, in Switzerland as we speak. But, you know, we, we kind of poke a bit of fun at it. But, you know, it's, it's not perhaps hugely surprising that the likes of Ineos Grenadiers have, have brought on Dan Bigham uh, in a role in the team, an aero expert, an incredibly, incredibly strong rider in his own right, but brought them into the team this year to advise on aerodynamics. And we are starting to see these these little tricks and... Of course, aerodynamics are nothing new in in the pro peloton. It's something that we've talked about a lot over the last few years. 
but that kind of expertise has tended to exist on a consultancy basis or time in the wind tunnel uh, ahead of a race, um, whereas now it's very much ingrained in some of the biggest teams. That's right. And I think, you know, you spoke to uh, Kieran O'Grady at uh, Israel Premier Tech and, you know, they were among a number of teams who were who were kind of porting some of that uh, time trial aerotech across to the road as well. And while we were we've kind of been, you know, used uh, used to the 42 centimeter wide handlebar being the sort of de facto standard within the pro peloton, we didn't see too many 42 centimeter handlebars at the tour this year. Not at all. And I mean, this is an extreme example, but really interesting to to go to the Intermarche uh, team hotel uh, ahead of the Grand Depart and get our hands on Taco van der Horn's bike. And you know, he's someone who's known, renowned for having quite an extreme position and being very into his optimizations. Um, so really interesting to see that bike, but that took it to the extreme. So I think it was 38 centimeters um, at the drops, but his shifter hoods were aggressively turned in to say the least to give him an effective bar width of uh 33 centimeters i think we measured it at and and this is something this is a subject that's close to your heart simon because you what was the size of the bar that you ran last year in in one of our features so, so yeah that was <laughs> this is a really silly uh bar technically it was supposed to be for track cycling uh wasn't really advised to use it for road but um yeah that that handlebar measured 33 centimeters at the drops and 26 centimeters at the hoods but it because it had because of the way it flared and obviously it pointed the hoods in you know naturally anyway it ended up being more like kind of 24 centimeters between the between the hoods and the top now um you know that that was too narrow i haven't i haven't stuck with that handlebar but i was surprised you know the the kind of effects on the handling of my bike you know weren't particularly poor if i'm honest and uh the the main issue was that it put a lot more strain on your uh, triceps when you're climbing out the saddle and obviously around here we have a lot of you know short steep sharp climbs and so you know it, it wasn't quite right for me but i think if you were doing you know if you, if you were like taco vanderhorn you come from the netherlands that's not a problem so <laughs> um i can see why you know, I can. The aero gains are really, really obvious from kind of narrower bars, and and you know, you can really, you know, you feel like you're kind of getting into a time trial position as your kind of uh, elbows come in and your and your arms come in. So I can see why, uh, you know, a rider who was looking for kind of you know a bit of free speed is doing it. But as you say, most riders were not using kind of positions as extreme as that. But we didn't really see anything above a forty. We saw a lot of riders with you know nice long professional standard 140 millimeter stems and sort of 38 centimeter handlebars that wasn't that unusual but yeah not very many 42 centimeter handlebars so that's an in, that's an interesting one um spoken to some team members who said that riders like the narrow bars to help them squeeze through gaps in the peloton as well as being a kind of an aero gain if you're not a breakaway specialist maybe you don't need that kind of you know time trial position to be out in out in the wind all day but squeezing through gaps in the bunch you know (laughs) if anyone's watched any pro racing you know you'll know how often pro riders are told to get to the front um and if you've ever tried to move up through a bunch it, it can be incredibly difficult and uh so yeah, if you can kind of reduce your bar width and squeeze for a smaller gap, that just makes your life a bit easier, I guess. And I think this, you know, this this is definitely a 
uh, a confirmed trend in the sense that it, you know it, it's no longer just riders using a narrower handlebar than perhaps they previously used. There are handlebars being specifically designed effectively for this purpose. So you know, quite common now for uh, an aero bar um, on a Tour de France bike to have a, a flared drop. So you know, it, it could measure forty centimeters or thirty-eight centimeters across the tops from hood to hood, but then be two centimeters wider on the drop. So you, you still have a um, potentially more leverage or a more secure descending position if you are in the drops, but you can get tucked in uh, when on the hoods. And also, the new kind of Durace uh, hoods and, and shifters do lend themselves quite nicely to a, a kind of tucked-in position. So. Uh, we keep referring to Israel Premier Tech, but that was one of the, the teams that we saw. They have a new bar from Black Ink, which is, as I said, two centimetres wider on on the drops. But that's a trend ac- across the board. And interesting that, you know, flare drops aren't just for gravel bikes. There's uh, an application in, in road cycling as well. So, yeah, again, that's another new aero trick that we've seen at this year's Tour de France that perhaps we haven't in, in, in previous editions. Absolutely. Right. So we're always talking about tyres because... You know, it's one of the key, uh, you know, key tech systems in any road bike. And as usual, the trend towards tubeless road tires and wheel systems, you know, continues to gather pace within the Pro Peloton. Before we flew out, I have to say I thought we might see even more people on tubeless on tubeless tires, but there were actually still some teams on tubulars. But significantly. There are a few whole teams, including you know Team Ineos Grenadiers, and obviously whenever they do anything tech-related, that's always a significant story because they're kind of renowned for their you know marginal gains approach to the sport. But um, they have completely switched over to tubeless setups using the Continental GP5000 STR tire for road stages and a new TT version of that tire for the opening time trial, the GP5000 TT TDF. Now. You spotted those tyres, didn't you, George, on the wheels of Filippo Garner's time trial bike? That's right, yeah, and we, and we did end up seeing them on uh, bikes from a number of Continental-sponsored teams, so they were unreleased. We didn't know anything about them when we first saw them at, at Enios, but uh, Continental has followed up with a press release, so as you'd expect, they are said to be significantly faster than the existing uh, GP5000S TR, which is in itself was already a fast tyre. I think that got a full five-star review from you. Yeah, it's already won a time trial world championships. <laughs> exactly, so certainly no slouch. And yeah, as you say, not, a, a not, but not under my power. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Simon. Just for um, the listeners who suddenly thought, oh. <laughs> Mo- Moonlight says Filippo, Filippo Ganner as well yeah. as being a, a top tech writer. Um, but yeah, one under the, the power of Filippo Ganner won the world time trial championships last year, was also the tyre used to win Paru base are two very different applications uh, for time trials and on the cobbles. So clearly a very fast, versatile tyre, but this is one that I suppose focuses less on durability to gain more speed for time trials. That's probably the kind of simplest way to put it. There will be lots of tech beneath the surface to make that happen. Um, unfortunately, Filippo Ganna did get a puncture, um, but there were lots of riders and lots of teams using this tyre, and there is an element of luck there, of course. Um, but yeah, interesting. Uh, clearly, it's quite a niche application, um, but it is available to consumers now. So if you are a fast time trial rider, then £100 a pop gets stuck in. <laughs> Yikes, £100 a pop. Well, I think I guess I suppose in fairness to Continental, Vittoria, Corsa speeds aren't, aren't, aren't especially cheap either. So um, yeah, I, you know, 
like you, like you say, kind of specialist uh, equipment like this is always going to be sort of low volume stuff. So you know, it's it's hardly surprising to see it kind of comes in a bit more expensive because yeah, they. Uh, the research and development goes into it doesn't necessarily get recouped through mass sales. You, you're not going to see these spec on OEM bikes anytime soon, I don't think. No, but yeah, we'll, the question is, will you be calling a set in for your personal time trial bike? Will we see it on the the hallowed roads of the Chew Valley time trial course in Somerset? Oh, I mean, we'll call. I will be calling some in, and yeah, I'll, I'll be putting them. I'll be comparing them to the course of speeds. So it'd be really interesting to see if they can. Um, kind of take the crown I, I think most places consider the Victoria Corsa Speed to be the kind of king of time trial tyres right now there was a there was a small period uh, last year where a new uh, Veloflex record clincher was released which um, <laughs> for those who don't know the Veloflex record is is a Rizzler paper fin tyre um, and that was said to be by some to be the new kind of king of rolling resistance, but um, it's tricky to get hold of those. So I think the Victoria Corsa Speed is the one that most people still kind of assume to be the fastest tyre according to most independent testing. But of course, we will put the new Conti GT, GP 5000 TT tyre for its paces against that. And yeah, like if it's if it's faster, I'll be happy to switch. And um, I, you know, the Corsa Speed G2 is a slightly old tyre now, and I. And I've no doubt <laughs> we'll, pro- we'll probably see Vittoria release an, uh, their own course of speed free at some point, which, you know, will be, I'm sure, said to uh, surpass everything else. But, um, you know, that's fine for me. I don't mind companies releasing new fast tyres. It's interesting that Continental released that TT tyre in a, a 25 millimetre width only. And I think it's fair to say for time trials that is the standard now. But there were some teams certainly run in 28mm rear tyres, possibly for a bit of comfort, possibly for an aerodynamic benefit in terms of the tyre more closely hugging the the seat tube cutaway. Um, but on the road, what would you say the, the kind of standard is now? Because there's a bit more of a mix when it comes to road bike or road stages. So, I, as you say, I think there was a bit more of a mix and it kind of seemed to depend on whether the teams were running tubular or whether they were running tubeless. Now, if they're running tubeless, most teams tended to be running a sort of 28C tyre. And depending on the kind of rims they're running on, those those might have come up, you know, dead on 28 millimetres wide. Or maybe, as in the case of uh, Jasper Stuyven's Trek Modon SLR, seemed to come up significantly wider. The Bontrager ALS62 RSL wheels that Stuyven had on his bike have a pretty generous internal rim width of 23 millimeters and that's obviously wider than the i say obviously but if you're a tire nerd you'll know that that is wider than the kind of etrto standard uh rim dimension of 19 millimeters and the kind of long story short is that basically plumps up a tire's volume uh for a given size so to my kind of you know eyeball vernier calipers they looked closer to kind of 30 millimeters which you know for an aero road bike you know would have been unheard of uh, a few years ago teams running tubulars on the other hand seem to be mostly on uh 26c tubulars which is i think a new size for vittoria they used to do 25 so i think they've moved over to 26 i'm not sure if they've actually changed anything or if they've just kind of you know reworked their labeling based on the kind of actual size of the tyre perhaps but um, yeah most of the teams who were on Vittoria Corsa Tubular seem to be running the, the 26-28 tyres 
and then yeah people who were on tubeless were running 28 c's i think there is a general acceptance that the the kind of comfort benefits the the reduction in vibration and um just the kind of the fact that you know modern wheels are designed around wider tires it basically means that you're just using the optimal setup uh and yeah away from obviously in a time trial it's slightly different as you say because most of the wheels there are designed around uh kind of slightly lower your situations where you know basically you're getting more of a headwind and so in those conditions uh kind of frontal area matters a little bit more and so yeah maybe you pick a slightly narrower tire to fit your really deep rim which you know uh, in a previous podcast we did with Luisa Grapponi of Hunt Wheels she sort of said to me that uh, deeper wheels tend to have narrower rims because they, they slightly work better whereas you know the kind of ultra wide sort of say the Hunt Limitless wheels which are around 34 millimeters wide you, you're only going to see rims of that width uh, up to about sort of you know 60 or 70 millimeters but anything beyond that and you know we're seeing time trialing we're seeing rims of kind of 90 millimeters you know 100 millimeters in terms of the kind of aero coach titan which a lot of teams use um those are slightly narrower maybe optimized around slightly narrower tires as well but you know i have had private conversations with you know some brands who kind of (laughs) didn't want to be named for fear of giving away team secrets but that yeah as you say there have been some teams using 28 millimeter tires in time trials um as you say there can be a number of reasons for it you know maybe for you know it was very wet in that opening first stage and you know a kind of wider tire at slightly lower pressure might give you a bit more grip if if the roads aren't good quality then yeah it's gonna maybe reducing your vibrational losses as well and, and therefore reducing your rolling resistance um if you depending on the frame that you have as you say it can fill in the gap between the kind of the rear wheel and the seat tube and just kind of reduce that turbulence there a little bit so you know what's what's interesting to note i think is that all of the teams it would seem are going into a lot of detail on these really small things you know things that we might have you know associated with you know the, the kind of team skies and the jumbo vismas and the kind of mega teams of the sport it seemed to me that even you know we went to kind of what teams who you know, perhaps some people would have considered small teams a few years ago but they were all doing these things now mm. and i think we touched upon it earlier but you know part of the reason why speeds are getting faster and faster in pro cycling is you know it's partly due to the emergence of power meters and training techniques and just the kind of knowledge around the the sports science but also the tech generally is better than ever and there is more of a focus on performance when it comes to tech and having that knowledge within teams and having that knowledge within the R&D departments of the brands that are developing equipment so you know clearly not everything works for everyone whether you're a consumer or, or a pro rider but on the whole bikes are faster and better than ever but that's that's no great surprise as kind of time ticks on just on the kind of tubeless width uh, aspect we also saw a prototype maxis tire in a 28c width um which we assume will go into production in the not too distant future um and again you know that is a a width that uh and this was with the Isabel premier tech team that they believe will be the most aerodynamic and the fastest in terms of rolling resistance on the black ink wheels that they use so yeah as you say certainly 28c seems to be becoming the standard on road bikes but certainly a few outliers with tubulars on on 25c as well yeah and i think it's kind of easy to forget you know how uh <laughs> it wasn't that long ago that you know 
people in the industry, I wasn't really part of the industry then, this is slightly older than my time in the industry, but there was a big fuss around the move to 25mm tyres away from 23mm tyres. And, you know, if you went back just a decade, 28s would have been the reserve of, you know, cobbled classics only. Uh, so to see, you know, uh, a kind of someone you know like a, a basically like a lead out man for a sprinter like Jasper Stuyven uh who's the lead out man for Mads Pedersen in this year's tour um running you know 28 to sort of almost 30 millimeter tires on a flat road stage on the you know the fine quality tarmac roads of Denmark is is quite remarkable it is and it, is, it becomes very kind of normalized very quickly as well um so yeah wide tires are here to stay and as you said uh, just before George, the kind of speeds of the peloton are only increasing, and to kind of uh, complement that, we saw some pretty big gears <laughs> on use um, in Copenhagen, and uh, I f- personally didn't see anything smaller than fifty-four teeth, huge chain rings across the board, and again to reiterate the the point partly because we were looking at a lot of time trial bikes ahead of the opening stage, partly because the stages, the road stages that followed were flat and fast. But this is a, a trend that goes across the whole of this year uh, with the release of 12-speed um, group sets from all of the big three group set manufacturers and, and particularly Shimano, have, who have the biggest presence in the pro peloton. But not every Shimano-sponsored team is on 12-speed group sets at the Tour and even those who are still running 11-speed components um, are generally using bigger chain rings than we've typically seen. So 54 uh, as the largest chain ring on a double crank set seems to be the standard now. Um, the days of a 53-tooth chain ring seem to be over. Shimano don't even offer a 53-tooth chain ring for the new Duras group set. Um, and I think there are a couple of benefits here. So firstly, using a bigger chainring at the front it provides a, a bigger gear you can ride faster and you know there, there certainly have been instances where teams have used that to quite good tactical effect in terms of um, being able to um, uh, use a tailwind to their advantage or perhaps use the gear into their advantage on on a, on a descent but also uh, it can optimize the chain line and improve drivetrain efficiency and this is probably something that you can talk much more um with much more authority about than me, Simon, but um, you know that's also one of the other benefits. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and to be honest, I think that is you know probably the main thing because you know, as kind of SRAM points out, you know if, if they're on a consumer bike, you have a you know a stock biggest gear in with a SRAM Red Group set of fifty ten, and that is a bigger gear than a classic kind of fifty three eleven. So it's a pretty big gear, and and it's not that. The riders necessarily, you know, FSA launched a 64 tooth chainring, and that was reportedly used in the time trials. But it's not that the riders who used the 64 tooth chainring would have gone around, you know, mashing away in 64.11 for the entire time trial. It, it's more that you use the big chainring up front, and you know, you get one efficiency gain from you know the chain having to do a less a kind of a less aggressive circle. It doesn't have to bend at such a sharp angle at the front, but you also get the gain at the back in the sense that you're then further up the cassette than you would be you know f- to go the same speed at the same cadence. So that gives you a better chain line. But you're also using a larger cassette sprocket. So just with just as with at the front, you know the chains articulating at a less extreme angle. 
and that also gives you another small efficiency gain. You know, it's, a, it's a similar kind of concept to the whole uh, you know, oversized pulley wheel thing. You know, it, it, you're asking the chain to bend at a less extreme angle, and therefore you get less friction. So, you know, it, it's it's a kind of relatively small gain in the sense that you know you're not gonna you're not gonna gain 15 watts from doing this. But at the same time, it's a relatively easy one to do you can put it on any bike it's kind of you know reliable in the sense that it doesn't it's you know it's not going to make it perform any worse as a result of changing this so it's a kind of win-win situation and i think yeah like for all of these teams who are using these all these aero tricks all these amazing aero bikes these new tires you know new wheels they are all going really really fast and I think there's a psychological thing to it as well in the sense that if you've got a massive chain ring on the front of your bike, it, you know, it looks really good. You feel like you're going to go really fast and that better chain line definitely feels better. Uh, and I know that because I've got a 56 tooth chain ring on, Here my, we go. <laughs> on my time trial bike, which I used to think was pretty big until we went to this Tour de France. And apparently 56 is now a road gear. So <laughs> we saw we saw quite a few. Yeah, 56, 55, 56 two chain rings in preparation for those sprint stages. So, yeah, I mean, 54 is relatively small by pro standards at the moment. Exactly. So, you know, the, the, the kind of speeds of the pro peloton are just getting faster and faster. Um, you know, the, this, this year's edition of Paris-Roubaix, for example, was the fastest ever. And uh, race winner Dylan Van Baler of Team Ineos Grenadiers averaged... Like an absurd, almost 46 kilometers an hour. It's 45.79 kilometers an hour over the 257 kilometer race. Now, you know they would have had a tailwind. They had good conditions, but you know that was over <laughs> a, a race which is famous for poor quality roads. So you know if you go out and try and ride at uh, 45.79 kilometers an hour, you know uh, on the best road, you know perhaps even downhill with a tailwind you know you're going to struggle to do that for very long so the fact that you know 257 kilometer races are being won at an average speed of almost 46 kilometers an hour you know we often see the comment of kind of you know this aero tech is you know tested at unrealistic speeds of 50 kilometers an hour but actually for for the people who these kind of products are designed around these are not unrealistic speeds anymore no not not at all and you know, I think it's also worth saying in, in regard to gearing that you know, with the move to 11 speed, you, we have bigger cassettes at, at the back as well. So it's not like these bigger gears are, are kind of coming at the cost of a, of a pro having uh, a nice relatively easy gear for the climbs. Um, although I, I don't imagine that they are searching for another gear that doesn't exist like I often am on a, <laughs> on a steep climb and well, trying I to shift that shifter across once more. <laughs> but yeah, I think I don't. I can't remember what the new Durace cassette sizes are, but you can get an eleven thirty four, can't you? Yeah, you can get an eleven thirty four on the new Durace and new Altegra. They recently announced Shimano one hundred and five Di two, which um, if you haven't heard about, you've been living under a rock for the past couple of weeks. Then you should head to bikeradar.com now to read all of our coverage of that new group set. That uh, will have an eleven to thirty six cassette available, though I think that would technically be uh, non series. Um, but yeah, so that would give you a lowest gear of 3436, which I believe is the easiest gear Shimano has ever uh, put on their kind of, you know, premier road group sets. Uh, and so it's kind of, there's an interesting situation where <laughs> uh, road bike gearing for kind of punters like like you and I 
are it getting a lot easier, but um, but for the pros, it's going it's going in exactly the opposite direction. Mm. Whether you want to spin your way up your local climb or mash your way around Copenhagen, you've got lots of options, and that's that's always a good thing. That's right. Now, I think the last point that we need to talk about is um, the fact that despite the Tour de France being the sport's biggest shop window, it seems that a lot of brands and even you know, the biggest brands in the sport are still suffering from a lack of uh, component and stock availability. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we've, we've kind of touched upon it already in that um, not all teams, not all Shimano-sponsored teams were running uh, 12-speed road group sets. The, the vast majority, to be fair, were running the latest group set on their road bikes. There were a, f- a couple of outliers that were still running the old 11-speed on their road bikes. And uh, according to one team that we spoke to, that's because whilst they had some or enough or just about enough group sets to fit out their bikes they wouldn't have necessarily had enough for spare bikes and spare wheels and they wanted to have consistency across all components through the year so they've parked 12 speed for now and will hopefully jump on those components as soon as they can but certainly i don't think we saw any teams with time trial bikes with 12 speed shimano duros there's mostly 11 speed i can't think of one it's possible that team dsm who uh you know the kind of dedicated readers may know were the first team to receive new 12B components. It's possible that some of the new, as yet unreleased, Scott Plasma time trial bikes, that's what we believe they are, uh, Roman Bardet may have had 12B duress on that. But as you say, everyone else, uh, absolutely not. And even back to back world champion Filippo Garner has had to make do with 11 speed duress DI2 R9100 on his brand new. Pinarello Bolide F with its you know very very nice uh, 3D printed custom titanium handlebars, prototype Princeton carbon works wheels and prototype Continental Tour de France tyres so yeah he was able to get everything else but even he couldn't get the new 12 speed Dura Ace group set on his time trial bike and one of the things that we've seen a lot of people do, even on their road bikes, is as you say, most most teams have the 12-speed Shimano group sets on their road bikes, but they don't all have the new Dura Ace R9200 power meters. Now, we did see one on Caleb Ewan's bike, but former tour winner Geraint Thomas was still using his old Dura Ace R9100 power meter crank sets instead. And what's the, the compatibility issue or question there? Is that something that Shimano would recommend? So officially, they are, they are not compatible. Um, when they released the new group sets, they said they were not compatible, and I, and I believe that's to do with the fact that the you know the sort of spacing between the chain rings has changed with the new twelve speed uh, chain rings. Uh, obviously, there's a new twelve speed chain which is has different dimensions to the eleven speed chains, and so officially they're not compatible. Um, obviously, we have seen teams using it. So <laughs> that kind of says that there is a certain amount of compatibility. But anecdotally, we have heard some teams saying that they've experienced more chain drops as a result of this combination. Um, one person commented to me that it kind of it works, but it, it's not necessarily as reliable in a race situation, which uh, <laughs> obviously would be quite worrying if you're going into the Tour de France because the Tour de France is quite, quite, you know, quite famously a bike race. Yeah, and we we also saw a few teams using chain catchers, chain guards, perhaps more liberally than we would have done in in the past to give a little bit more extra security and, and peace of mind if the compatibility compatibility perhaps isn't 
what teams want it to be. So another pesky component added adding weight to those <laughs> uh, <laughs> to those big heavy bikes. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I think you know the thing that uh, sort of summed up for me uh, just how kind of bad the situation is is that um, Lotto Sudal were using Campagnolo Super Record EPS group sets from last season on their Ridley Dean time trial bikes. Now, Lotto Sudal is, uh, you know, Shimano is a partner of the Belgian team now. They're listed on their website as a kind of official sponsor. But it seems that even Shimano, you know, kind of world's largest manufacturer of uh, bicycle components, can't supply one of the best teams in the world with enough components for their bikes. Yeah, and I think it, it is a really tricky situation across the board, and you know there wasn't there isn't one team that's perhaps getting preferential treatment than than another. They will all be in slightly different situations, but you know no, no team has all of the components uh, that they want. Um, we also heard that Team Bike Exchange Jayco has also had to borrow twelve speed Durace parts from its women's squad to outfit some of the men's bikes at the tour. So. Um, yeah, not a, not a perfect situation. Um, hopefully, one that will be resolved uh, in the not too distant future. But you know, s- certainly, I think this component availability issue is going to drag on for a short while yet. And you know, I think it's also you know we don't want to be unfair to Shimano. We've we've talked about them a lot in this segment. But you know, firstly, twelve speed Durace is n- is newer, much newer than twelve speed Campag and twelve speed SRAM. Um, so there's uh, you know those groups have had have had a lot more time to to bed in and get into production. Um, and and we're also both released pre-COVID, I think, when a lot of these issues have uh, come to the fore. But also Shimano sponsors or supplies a lot more teams um, by a significant margin than both of those brands or or even both of those brands combined. So clearly that's going to exacerbate issues as well. So, um, yeah, I think this is one that's going to rumble on through the rest of the season, but hopefully things will settle down next year once uh, the new Durace is um, in stock across the border. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, if you ever kind of wanted to feel like a pro, well, now you know how they feel. When you can't get hold of those brake pads or those chain rings that you need, you know, the pros feel exactly the same way. So, you know, they're not so different from us. Plain old Jure starting R9100 for, uh, <laughs> yeah, for us, us poorly cycling journalists. <laughs> I, I, I joke there. I wish, I wish I had a Jure group, so I, I <laughs> yeah, certainly exactly. don't. If only. Right. Well, those are our top five tech trends from the 2022 Tour de France. Uh, If you found those interesting and you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, please leave those on biteradar.com. There'll be an article uh, going up to support this podcast, as George said earlier, and we always love to hear your thoughts and your feedback. As always, thank you very much for listening to the Bike Radar podcast and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.